hppodcraft.com. The final swoop of the night gaunts and mounted ghouls was very sudden. Each of the grayish toad-like blasphemies and their almost human slaves being seized by a group of night gaunts before a sound was made. The moon beasts, of course, were voiceless, and even the slaves had little chance to scream before rubbery paws choked them into silence. Horrible were the writhings of those great jellyish abnormalities, as the sardonic night gaunts clutched them, but nothing availed against the strength of those black prehensile talons. When a moon beast writhed too violently, a night gaunt would seize and pull its quivering pink tentacles, which seemed to hurt so much that the victim would cease its struggles. Carter expected to see much slaughter, but found that the ghouls were far subtler in their plans. They glibbered certain simple orders to the night gaunts which held the captives, trusting the rest to instinct, and soon the hapless creatures were borne silently away into the great abyss to be distributed impartially amongst the voles, gugs, ghasts, and other dwellers in darkness whose modes of nourishment are not painless to their chosen victims. Whoa. That is not a pleasant beginning to this episode. Not pleasant, but very exciting. Yeah, very exciting. This is the fourth part of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. You are joining us here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, where we're discussing said story. I'm one of your hosts, Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm your other host, Chris Lackey. And we're here at hppodcraft.com. Uh, when we last left you, Carter had gathered up a bunch of ghouls who have a treaty with the Night Gaunts, and he had said to them, look, the ghoul buddies that I had that had accompanied me on an earlier adventure are, have been captured by the moon beasts and they're being tortured, so we gotta, we gotta go over to where that camp is and we gotta wreck these moon beasts. That was in the uh, city of Sarkamond, or close nearby, where the, yeah. that camp was. So the uh, ghouls and the night gaunts and Carter, they all got together, they went up there, and they just kick ass all over the moon beasts. <laughs> the moon beasts were not prepared to deal with this night gaunt and slash yeah. ghoul invasion, and the night gaunts just basically took them away and dropped them off to be eaten by other monsters. It's uh, yeah, very creepy. Uh, obviously, the night gaunts themselves don't eat anything because they have no mouths. They just pick them up and they tickle them and they drop them. They drop them. They're, re- they're really... I, man, night gaunts are so cool. They're pretty neat. The very definition of the strong silent type. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the ghouls that were rescued were able to find out exactly what happened to them. Yeah. And Carter finds out that they went to Dilathlene and were, you know, asking around, trying to get passage to there. And they also... Yeah, on his instructions. He said, go instru- to Dilathlene, look for this slant-eyed merchant, and he can help you get to Sarkamon, where you can get back home. Right. Uh, and then, of course, they run into some merchants, and the merchants mm-hmm. give them some wine, some booze. Yep. They, get them, they get them drunk. Of course, Carter didn't tell them anything about, hey, watch out for these guys if they try and give you some, <laughs> some wine, because that won't work out for you. Yeah, they got shanghai too. Yeah. And uh, got, got slipped some Mickey's and they got take taken to uh, the moon beast and the moon beast, I guess, don't like ghouls very much and decided they're going to torture them for a while. And, oh, you know, the ghouls were trying to pretend to be humans, too, when they were doing this. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the ghouls are pretty un- inhuman. So they were, you know, in disguise, but obviously not the disguises weren't that good because. Uh, right. It worked for Carter. He was able to disguise himself as a ghoul, but going the other direction yeah. is not. You know, no, I just imagine these guys with dog faces and little mustaches. You know? <laughs> no, no, nobody's falling for it, man. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, they didn't work out for them. <laughs> that would be a great scene. All kinds of uncomfortable things could happen. They don't know what to order at the restaurant. You know? <laughs> Do you have flesh? Meet me. <laughs> uh, what kind of flesh? Uh, rotting, dead human flesh? Hmm. We'll be right back with the ghoul cops. <laughs> so the ghouls are really fired up still, even though they just beat ass all over these moon beasts. And they want to go out to that rock. The Howling Rock that we mentioned in the last episode. Yeah. And that's where the men of Lang, those pan-like men, mm-hmm. they get they get sort of taken away from Lang by the moon beasts who enslave them. And that rock is sort of their port, yeah. you know, where they, they, I don't know, chain them up and get them ready to take yeah, them off. Yeah, tra- train them to be good slaves or whatever. Right. But it's a stronghold for the moon beast. And the ghouls are hungry for blood. And they say, you know what, since they did this to our brothers we're gonna take out this whole port for them this whole this whole thing yeah. we're gonna we're gonna strike a blow and they are gonna feel it yeah that's that's pretty intense it is and the nikons unfortunately they don't like flying over water no they hate it they can't stand water uh which i found interesting carter says well check it out this black galley is still here let's take that and the ghouls go well hey what do we got? it's a galley we don't know how to work a galley we're ghouls we don't know those things and carter goes hey let me show you i'll show you how to row <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great moment in the uh, the hero's journey, you know, when he has to train everybody to do something. <laughs> I'm going to teach you all to fight. You, you always cut to that scene where everybody's doing kung fu together or, like, learning how to fight with a spear together. But, yeah. I can, I'm thinking of Army of Darkness right now. I am thinking of Army of Darkness as well. <laughs> and, and the ghouls also um, that are on board of the ship. They dress up like merchants. They get in disguise. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do, yeah. don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, and I'm sure that didn't go very well either. They put everything on wrong, you know. (laughs) They're the worst at disguise, the ghouls. That's their weakness. It's true. It doesn't work out because... They store the uh, night gaunts under the ship, too. Yeah, they hide hide below deck. All the night gaunts are below deck. And so they take the boat to this island, and as they're, they're coming in, the ghouls are dressed up like merchants. So, so there's people working on the boat. And so whoever sees the boat coming in, they'll see the guys dressed up like the merchants. Their plan is really awesome. They just want to pull into the harbor, unleash the night gaunts, and then back out and let them right. do their business. Yeah, exactly. It's just like pred- they're like predator drones or something like that. Yeah. But the moon beasts, they're not, they're not too dumb. No. Well, what happens is they pull into the wrong dock. Because the yeah. boat, the boat was supposed to obviously had a predetermined location, but nobody knew that that what, what what it was. And when they started moving to another dock, the the moon beasts were like, wait, wait a minute, you're you should be going over. You know, I guess they were pointing. I don't know. They don't. It doesn't explain how they know, but they know that they went at the wrong dock, and then they they start freaking out, and so that's right. when they unleash the nikons. The jellyfish moon beasts had procured a great pole, and were trying to push off the invading ship. But when the nikons struck them. They thought of such things no more. It was a very terrible spectacle to see those faceless and rubbery ticklers at their pastime, and tremendously impressive to watch the dense cloud of them spreading through the town and up the winding roadway to the reaches above. Sometimes a group of the black flutterers would drop a toad-like prisoner from aloft by mistake, and the manner in which the victim would burst was highly offensive to the sight and smell. When the last of the night gaunts had left the galley, the ghoulish leaders glibbered an order of withdrawal, and the rowers pulled quietly out of the harbor between the gray headlands, while still the town was a chaos of battle and conquest. Man, that's pretty nasty. They would, they, they would burst. Ugh. Yeah, that's some good stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
So the Nikons just kind of fl- flutter around for a while on the island because they're afraid to go fly over the water. Yeah, I thought that the ghouls actually, they're pretty, they, they're pretty interesting psychologists because they knew, well, you know what's going to happen? The Nikons will forget that they're afraid of water because they'll want to leave so much and then they'll just, they'll go. Yeah. They'll, they'll man up and they'll go. That, yeah, they knew enough about Nikon psychology to confidently say that they wouldn't <laughs> just stay on that rock forever. I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I did too, yeah. The ghouls like, are really awesome people, man. They're super loyal. Yeah. They're not good at disguise, but, you no. know, they, they know about, they've got treaties with Nikon. Like, Nyarlathotep is probably afraid of Nikon. You're, you're, that's going pretty far there, Chad. I don't, I don't know if that's true. Well, all right. well, a surprisingly large group of Mythos characters are afraid of Nikon. That's all right. I'm saying. Right. And the ghouls, I can't believe the ghouls have a treaty with them and they didn't just hoard them up and say, let's take over Boston, you know? If they have that kind of arsenal of monsters that they could mm-hmm. unleash on people, right? And they're not using it, mm-hmm. that makes them all the more cool. Yeah, they're good guys. I mean, they yeah. well, they just want to eat dead things. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, who's that hurting? It doesn't hurt anybody. So they just You're wait right. around for you know they don't, they don't want to get involved in taking over stuff and killing yeah. things. They're just gonna wait for people to die, and everybody dies eventually, and then they eat them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, not a big deal. Salt of the earth. The Nikons do scram. They man up. And then the uh, the they pull the black galley in mm-hmm. back to the harbor and Carter and the ghouls they get up and they just kind of ransack the town. It's yeah. funny the ghouls. Speaking of their simple heartedness, the ghouls they find a bunch of jewels and they taste them and they go, "Meh, these don't taste good. What do I need them for?" <laughs> they taste them. Yeah, they That's do. Right. They, they, I know, they don't want. I know, I know. Yeah. They also find um, they find some spears and some javelins, which ghouls That's aren't right. u- usually use weapons. And Carter's like, "Oh no, no, you guys should take these things. These are these will come in handy." And they also find altars to other gods, to the other yeah. gods. Yeah, which is so. The, these moon beasts are definitely in cahoots with the other gods, not the the great ones, not but, the great ones, right? But the the ones that exist outside of Earth, the crazy, strange ones like Azathoth and, and Nyarlathotep and and all that mm-hmm. stuff. No, there's a great line there, too, where Carter refers to the ghouls as his unlovely allies. <laughs> my new my new band name for the week. Um, he, so a new black galleon shows up while they're yeah. busy about ransacking. So the sentries see it, and then Carter says, okay, here's the plan. Set up a line of defense. They set up this line of defense at the dock. The ship starts to pull in, and they say, oh, wait a minute. This isn't yeah. the way things should be. There's a ton yeah, of ghouls. The ship gets with, wise. Yeah. With weapons. <laughs> And so they decide to pull around uh, to the other side of the island. And Carter knows, uh, well, they're going to try and land on another part, and we got to go block them. Yeah, so the the boat pulls over to one place, it drops off a party, it pulls over to another place, it drops off another party, and then it pulls back out to sea. So Carter says, all right, I'll get in the galleon, I'll chase off the other galleon. Right. And then he organizes the ghouls into a couple of parties to do three, the battle, Three right? parties, yeah. two. He sends right. one over to the first group, another to the other group. Uh, that's mm-hmm. on the other side of the island, and he keeps one group at the city, you know, the village yeah. where they're at, just as kind of backup in in case the galley tries to land again. Right. You know, tries to go around them and land. And one, the first party just rules. They totally kick ass. They yeah. They defeat all the moon beasts or the almost humans that have come off the boat. Yeah. But the other party needs reinforcements. So he sends uh, some people from the village, you know, the the backup zone. They go and they go to support. But then also the first group that kicked ass comes around the other side and, sur- and surrounds this other group. And they're able to totally rock him. Yeah, a few moon beasts do escape, I think, in their in their galley. They finally take off. But they kill all of everybody on the land. They decide, well, that was great. We did a good job. But we should get, really get clear here before more galleys show yeah. up. And one, one detail, I, th- I felt really bad because about... A fourth of the ghouls got killed in the battle. Right, yeah, but, one of the cool things though is uh, he says that the ghouls didn't eat their eat their wounded, 
because <laughs> typically that was the the practice before is that yeah. if they were wounded they would eat them but uh <laughs> pikmin has discouraged the old ways and has kind of brought this this new kind of kinder kindler gentler uh ghoul you know so they, yeah. they tend to the wounded and help them as opposed to just killing them and eating them <laughs> so well at first i felt bad that over a fourth died but then when i read that i didn't feel so bad like, well <laughs> as cute as these guys are they're still a little yeah they're still yeah they're still ghouls I mean, they're still monsters on. Well, the funny thing that comes out of this whole battle is that Carter feels like he's owed something. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, he he does feel like he's owed something. But he, well, first first of all, they sail back to Sarkamond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get in the galley and they go back to back to Sarkamond, and then you know they're ready to part ways because the ghouls don't have the night gods anymore, so they need to right. you know get back in, be able to get back down to the ground. But they're very thankful for Carter. Yeah, you know they're very. Yeah, they're very. They're thankful. so happy that this has all happened, and they and they feel like they owe they feel like they owe him something. And it just that was so puzzling to me because they wouldn't be in they wouldn't have even gone to war if it wasn't for his quest. Yeah, I mean he he caused all of this. Yeah, those ghouls getting tortured, the the fourth of the ghoul army that just got killed just now. I mean that's all on him. Yeah. But for some reason they think, hey, thank you so much, and and he says, yeah, you owe me. <laughs> well, no, he well, come on now, he's a little bit more like, hey, I I want to ask a favor of you guys. Could you give me, you know, some night guns and a couple of ghouls to back me up when I go talk to the other gods? True. He he only asks for like ten or fifteen night guns. You're so right. so uh, Pikmin and the ghouls kind of go. Hold on a second. They all huddle up and they come back and they say, "Hey, dude, since you helped us out so much, since you've been so awesome, we're all gonna go with you." Yeah, we're all in. That's awesome. <laughs> a little crazy, but awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, he tells them his plan. He tells them, you know, before they agree to it, uh, he, he says that, you know, there are these Shantaks that will try and stop us. But Night Gaunts, they, they scare the crap out of these Shantaks. So they're not going to be able to bother us. So we're going to be able to get in. So they, the guys have no fear. They say, let's do it. Let's all go. And all uh, the Night Gaunts start showing up. The ghouls assemble. And I think the Night Gaunts just start flying off with a couple of ghouls. Or they all start flying off way high past Lang. They do scare off a Shantak. A Shantak comes by to check him out yep. and then goes, I don't like this, and runs away um, or flies away. Uh, they decide to go over the desert, the cold waste, and, and they fly past those mountain statues that we'd seen before. Mm -hmm. And they keep going. It gets darker and darker. And then the stars emerge, mm -hmm. which, you know, as they keep going northward, they, they see all these sort of shapes floating in the distance at one point mm -hmm. and they don't really know what it is they wait for a gap in the mountains to catch it they they wait for kind of a gap in the mountain range to see what it is and you you remember that in the last episode we talked about these mountain ranges that look like giant heads with hands kind of pushing right, yeah, like giant big giant mountain size yeah Warnings. this is what those are and they're getting a closer look for another minute suspense was keen and then the brief instant of full silhouette and revelation came bringing to the lips of the ghouls an odd and half-choked meep of cosmic fear, and to the soul of the traveler a chill that has never wholly left it. For the mammoth-bobbing shape that overtopped the ridge was only a head, a mitered double head, and below it in terrible vastness loped the frightful, swollen body that bore it, the mountain-high monstrosity that walked in stealth and silence, the hyena-like distortion of a giant anthropoid shape that trotted blackly against the sky, its repulsive pair of cone-capped heads reaching halfway to the zenith. 
Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so it's the actual mountains. The statues are, are moving in their bodies. Yeah, they're not statues. They're just giant flipping monsters. Yeah, what are they? Tentacle heads? They freak out the ghouls. The ghouls are freaked out by it. <laughs> right. And Pikmin tells everybody, let's go higher. Yeah. <laughs> let's get away from all this stuff. He glibbers that up. They keep flying up higher and higher and higher. And then they realize that the the Nikons aren't even flapping anymore. They're not. They're just kind of floating out in space. And then they're, they're caught in something. Something has got a hold of them and it starts pulling them down. It's like a wind, a force, some powerful, powerful force is plucking them out of space. It's a tractor beam, isn't it? It is a tractor beam. As they get closer, they see this beacon that's kind of drawing them forward. Mm -hmm. It's got to be the most insane giant mountain since they're basically in outer space. Yeah. Higher than anything. And then he sees in the, the light by that beacon the shapes of towers. Then Randolph Carter knew that his quest was done and that he saw above him the goal of all forbidden steps and audacious visions, the fabulous the incredible home of the Great Ones atop unknown Kadath. He's here. This is the Onyx Palace. Yeah, he's, he's made it. This is where he's been trying to get the whole story. So they go straight on through that current to the Onyx Castle. Yeah, and they're being pulled. They're being pulled in. They're, they have no control at this point. Vaster and vaster loomed the tenebrous towers of the knighted castle above. And Carter could see that it was well-nigh blasphemous in its immensity. Well might its stones have been quarried by nameless workmen in that horrible gulf, rent out of the rock in the hill pass north of Inganok. For such was its size that a man on its threshold stood even as an ant on the steps of Earth's loftiest fortress. It's big. Yeah, it's flipping gigantic. And the beacon is a window, actually, in one of the towers. They flow through a gate and a courtyard, and suddenly they're just sort of in the throne room. This gigantic, huge, crazy, big throat room. And they're just, you know, kind of sitting there. Now, Carter's idea was to get in front of the other gods and say, hey, look, I got backup with me. I am somebody that you need to reckon with. You should listen to my request. I'm not just some chump. I'm a dude who's got, right. I've got the ghouls. I've got the night gaunts with me. I'm important. Listen yeah. to what I say. But that's out the window, man, because yeah. obviously the other gods don't give anything about these. You know, they just pull them in with this magic tractor beam. Right. So, he, you know, he's not in a position of, of negotiation right now. But now he saw that supernal Kadath, in its cold waste, is indeed girt with dark wonders and nameless sentinels, and that the other gods are of a surety vigilant in guarding the mild, feeble gods of Earth. Void as they are of lordship over ghouls and night gaunts, the mindless, shapeless blasphemies of outer space can yet control them when they must, so that it was not in state as a free and potent master of dreamers that Randolph Carter came into the Great One's throne room with his ghouls. Swept and herded by nightmare tempests for the stars, and dogged by unseen horrors of the northern waste, all that army floated captive and helpless in the lurid light, dropping numbly to the onyx floor when by some voiceless order the winds of fright dissolved mm. but yeah didn't quite work out for him nobody is in the room completely empty but then there is a a blast a trumpet a demon trumpet a demon trumpet or a daemon trumpet I'm not sure how that's pronounced <laughs> a daemon trumpet and all of a sudden Carter is alone the ghouls and right. Night Gone Surge is gone feel good no no it doesn't it doesn't so he's sitting there 
by himself, you know, in the, in this gigantic chamber, and two columns of giant black slaves and iridescent loincloths come out. <laughs> and, mm. Yeah. <laughs> A little strange here. Keep, uh, keep going. And upon... <laughs> Upon their heads, they've got these giant, they have helmets, gigantic helmets with torches of metal on them. This is like a Dead or Alive concert. This. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're coming down. Uh, they have, uh, in their hands, they have crystal wands, which I'm a little confused, but what, the, what do the wands do? They. They, I don't know. They light up something, or they just they just have wands in their hand. I don't. I don't know, but they're like Egyptian servants, kind of, right? They right, come yeah. out in these columns, and, they're, and there's they're, uh, they're they're basically a procession. There, there you it's go. kind of a procession. There yeah, and they have armlets and and anklets, and you know they're all done up, yeah. very Egyptian <laughs> style, and they walk very somberly. You know, they're right. you know they're 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 slaves. They're like you know big you know overly done flamboyant yeah. fabulous slaves. It's very uh, Egyptian. Yeah. Then down the wide lane betwixt the two columns, a lone figure strode, a tall, slim figure, with the young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes and crowned with a golden skint that glowed with inherent light. Close up to Carter strode that regal figure, whose proud carriage and swart features had in them the fascination of a dark god or fallen archangel and around whose eyes there lurked the languid sparkle of capricious humor. It spoke, and in its mellow tones there rippled the mild music of Lethian streams. Very flamboyant dude (laughs) comes out of this, you know, and obviously important, but he's, I mean, he's a person. That's one of the things that kind of shocked me. It's not a big amorphous tentacled monster. You know, it's not some weird... No. You know, weird creature. The very noble, heavy-looking guy. And uh, yeah. he says, Randolph, you, you know, you come to see the, the great ones. That's unlawful. Yeah. Men aren't supposed to do that. There's this guy, Barzai the Wise. I know you know this. He climbed half that claw to see the great ones, and he got sucked up into the sky. There was another dude, yeah. Zenig of Afarat. He tried to get out here like you're doing, and his skull is now set in the ring on the little finger of a, somebody I need not name. I don't, I don't know who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, Randolph Carter have braved all things of Earth's dreamland and burned still with the flame of quest. You came not as one curious, but as one seeking his due, nor have you failed ever in reverence toward the mild gods of Earth. Yet have these gods kept you from the marvelous sunset city of your dreams and wholly through their own small covetousness. For verily, they craved the weird loveliness of that which your fancy had fashioned, and vowed that henceforward no other spot should be their abode. Whoa. Son of a bitch. So he gets there, uh, and the Great Ones have split. They're not there anymore. Yeah, they're in his city. They're in his city, partying. It's a double cross. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want him to see it because they want it. Yeah, they're, they were covetous jerks and uh now they're there rocking it in in the, in this golden city of his and yeah, they're there every day doing all the stuff that he wants to do this pharaoh says to him you know you dream too well it's it's your fault yeah you shouldn't have made it so cool but he also lets him in on some stuff here this is where this this pharaoh guy br- breaks it down for him he says hey look you know that that place that you you dream of it's you know how you made it where it comes from what it is for know you 
that your gold and marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen and loved in youth. It is the glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with sunset, and the flower-fragrant common, and the great dome on the hill, and the tangle of gables and chimneys in the violet valley where the many-bridged Charles flows drowsily. These things you saw, Randolph Carter, when your nurse first wheeled you out in the springtime, and they will be the last things you will ever see with eyes of memory and of love. These, Randolph Carter, are your city, for they are yourself. New England bore you, and into your soul she poured a liquid loveliness which cannot die. This loveliness molded, crystallized, and polished by years of memory and dreaming is your terraced wonder of elusive sunsets, and to find that marble parapet with curious urns and carven rail and descend at last those endless balustraded steps to the city of broad squares and prismatic fountains, you need only to turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Yeah, it's just New England. Yeah, that's the city. I mean, so the whole time that Carter's been trying to find this place, you know, he's there already. Yeah, and this man says to him even, you know, you would have been dead already because of all the stuff you've pulled if it weren't for the fact that it's in your power alone since you created this city to get the great ones out of there. Yeah, and that, that I need you, basically, is what he yeah. says. He goes, you need to go into that city and get them out of there. It's funny. It's a cool little part when he's talking about it. He says there, he, he names some real places and then some places that aren't real. You know, he says there's mm-hmm. Salem, there's Marblehead, there's Providence, Newport, Arkham, <laughs> Kingsport, you know? Yeah. He, he kind of bundles them all together. This is the, the place that you created. And obviously this ties very closely to Lovecraft and, you know, how he feels about Providence, you know, especially after returning from being away in New York for a few years. Yeah. And it's exactly as uh, Kirani said earlier in the midpoint of the story. That's the stuff. Right. Yeah. This is what it's about. Um, Well, they, you know, this, this guy has a plan for him. He says, look, I want you to go back there. I'm going to, Yogash the Black will help you. And so I I don't know, (laughs) a Shantak shows up and there's a jockey named Yogash the Black and he, he helps uh-huh. him up on the Shantak and he says, go back to your city, you know, show him your Shantak. The gods will know that you mean business. You know, tell yeah. him, but you need to talk to him. Tell him how great Kadath is. Make them remember yeah. that they, they shouldn't be in the place that they are right now until they, right. they feel so bad that they left Kadath behind that they want to come back. And yeah. then they They'll miss it. it. Yeah. He just says, hey, look, they're going to miss it. They're going to get homesick and they're going to want right. to come back. You are off. Send back Earth's gods to their haunts on unknown Kadath, and pray to all space that you may never meet me in my thousand other forms. Farewell, Randolph Carter, and beware, for I am Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos. Wow, oh my god! <laughs> Look at that. He was Nyarlathotep. It's that itinerant showman. Yeah, we, we, we've seen him before. Yeah. We have. Well, and he's obviously has many other forms. You know, he's right. he's always changing. He's kind of mercurial. You don't know when you're going to be dealing with uh, Aralathotep. Yeah, the dark man in the woods, or uh, right, yeah. the scientist Tesla kind of figure that wanders that came out of ancient Egypt, and, and then we have him here. So it's pretty pretty cool, man. And then Aralathotep gives him instructions. He tells him, you know, okay, first you're going to have to steer, you know, steer this way up into the sky. You're going up for Vega. And uh, you're going to hear some singing sounds. And now when you hear that, 
you have to turn left. And if you don't, you're going to end up in the center of the universe. And that's where Azathoth is. And it's going to be bad. So you don't do that. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then they take off. The Shantak and Randolph, they go blasting through space. And he does hear that singing. But the Shantak won't take the left, right? No, he won't do it. He won't go. Shantak stays true, keeps going towards uh, the middle of space, which he knows that's where the mindless demon Sultan Azathoth is. And he does not want to go there. So at this point, it's he, he thinks he's been duped by Nyarlathotep, or he mm. thinks he's been duped. Now, now, this is a very confusing, because in um, I, I've read this, and I don't quite get that that he was duped by Nyarlathotep. When I first read it, you, I agree with you. I didn't think he'd been duped. I just thought maybe he was having some problems with the Shantak. I mean, the way that right. this... We're getting close to the end of the story here, and the way it ends is sort of almost dreamlike in a way. No, not in a way. It's dreamlike. You know, the way that the, the right. things kind of progress at the end of the story is it, it's sort of nonsensical in a way. But I did feel like he got the proper instructions from Nyarlathotep, and he was just executing them. But when I did read summaries of this, they all say that Nyarlathotep was tricking him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and really, he was sending him off to go see Azathoth. But if he was tricking him, why did he give him all that information that was true? Was it true? That's one of the things that I'm really confused about. Are the Great Ones really in the Old City? I don't know. Well, that, 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 that's never answered. You know, because basically, well, this part's pretty confusing. You know, and there doesn't seem to be any real, real clear-cut answers. Except for Carter knows he doesn't want to go to the center of the universe. And so he leaps off of the Shantak. He just yeah. jumps. I mean, they're going through this black gulf of space and time. It's sort of like he described before when he was going to the moon. And there were these dark, tittering things in space. It's a scary place to be by yourself. Certainly, you don't want to be floating down through there. But he just does it. He leaps. Yeah, he, he leaps that much of a choice, really. When he get, when he, when he leaps, well, I, he could go see Ezathoth and try and talk him out of it. I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. But he, he goes back through the birth of the universe. Yeah. But then he starts to think. He starts to think about the things that... Yeah, things get really, at this point, just really crazy and trippy. You know? Like yeah. It's just... Everything's getting wacky, and and <laughs> he's seeing time and everything happen again. Like, all... Yeah. Everything. Everything that's ever been and ever will be. He he witnesses it and sees it, and it's all... It's all crazy. And he, he falls, and he falls, and he falls, and he falls down. But he remembers what Nyarlathotep said to him. You need mm-hmm. only turn back to thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. And then he starts to think about it, and... As he does. So to the organ chords of morning's myriad whistles, and dawn's blaze thrown dazzling through purple panes by the great gold dome of the state house on the hill, Randolph Carter leaped shoutingly awake within his Boston room. Birds sang in hidden gardens, and the perfume of trellised vines came wistful from arbors his grandfather had reared. Beauty and light glowed from classic mantle and carven cornice and walls grotesquely figured, while a sleek black cat rose yawning from the hearthside sleep at his master's start and shriek had disturbed. And vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber, and the enchanted wood, and the garden lands, and the Serenirian sea, and the twilight reaches of Inganok, the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep, strode brooding into the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and taunted insolently the mild gods of earth, whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvelous sunset city. Uh, it sounds like the plan worked out. 
Yeah. The gods fled the city because Randolph showed up and mm. uh, he's he woke up and he's back home. It's yeah. The Wizard of Oz. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the story. That is the end of the story. Whew. <sighs> wow, we did it, Chad. Yeah, we did it. Four parts. That's the longest we've done uh, over yeah, one story. It really is. And it, it felt. You know what? I got to say this. I, I, I dreaded this one from the minute we started this podcast, and then I wound up really enjoying it. was tough to sit down and read through the whole thing, but I enjoyed it. There was a lot. Of, it's so psychedelic and crazy. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of neat stuff, and there's some interesting ideas. And, and one of the things that I kept going back to is that Lovecraft, this is a, basically a first draft. You know, like he never yeah. intended this to be published, and this is just something he wrote. And then he kind of was like, well, you know, I don't really want to go through with it. I'm going to go write something else. And right. and if you keep if you keep that in mind, it's pretty cool. It's kind of interesting. There's some really neat stuff. Yeah. But as as a story, as as, as something you would sit down and read, uh, just to be entertained, I don't. <laughs> it you know it's not it isn't that it's not. Yeah. For for the a common reader, I mean, if you're a Lovecraft fan and you really, you know, are into this type of thing, then you know I'm sure it'll appeal to some people. But generally, I would never recommend this story to anybody. No, I mean it is it's it's more like a, a treatment private outline, you yeah. know. But I would love, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it get developed into into a story where I don't know, I thought there's great stuff in it. It really is. Because I know it's a first draft and it wasn't something that he necessarily intended for publication or circulated even among his friends, I'm not going to be too hard on it. Yeah, no. But there are great ideas. As usual, Lovecraft's imagination is insanely cool and I, I love being able to live there for a little bit of time and yeah and uh i got nothing to say bad about the writing because it's mm. not wasn't really meant for public consumption yeah. well, it's just a lot of great neat monsters neat ideas and uh he created his own little world there it's pretty fascinating yeah. well a little background on it it was uh he started writing it in october of uh, 1926 and then uh didn't finish it until january 22nd of 1927 mm. so he took some time, but as we talked about before with the Silver Key, he wrote that while he was writing this. Yeah. So that's you know I'm I'm still a little confused about you know the Silver Key and this we're trying trying to say. I don't think it is clear cut as when we were talking with Ken before that the Sunset City is Boston, because what it sounds like you know when what Nair Lathotep actually says is it this city is made up of your of your childhood, your memories, and your memories. Right. It's not. It's not actually Boston, right? But Ken was right that there are, you know, there are themes in conflict because in this story, it's saying the, um, it quite clearly is saying by the ending and, and with what Kirani says that you are striving for these dream cities that you've never been to before, but the best stuff is already in your past. It's already there, and and you know, right? But that, but, but that's. I mean, it's saying it's it's in your past, which means you can't really go back to it, but. No. In in this other story, than in memory, yeah. in, in memory. But then he does go back to it, and then he's able to still get something out of it, I guess. Yeah. You know, but it's still. But the silver key, he was able to go back and live in that city. Yeah. As and re-experience his youth, basically, so that he could get the silver key and get the hell out of there to right. go experience dream cities and that sort of thing. So they, you know, they're in conflict. I I don't think it's something that should even be thought about that hard because they're both dream stories and they follow a strange right. logic and right. and and this wasn't um, published uh, until after Lovecraft's death in 1943 and it was in a, an anthology which was Beyond the Wall of Sleep you know it, obviously this never saw the light of day until after Lovecraft died and was found probably by yeah. Durleth, I I'm, I'm guessing that's an interesting time to have published a story with so much uh, so many 
different states going to war, huh? Yeah. 1943. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right in the middle of the war. It's actually probably a better time to publish it. Yeah. Um, some people now were talking about, you know, possible influences that this story you know, might have gotten. And uh, have you ever heard of William Beckett's Vathek? Well, I've heard of Vathek in the context of the story. Right. That, yeah. That's it. I, I haven't read it, and yeah. I don't know much about it, but yeah, it's, well, it's apparently very similar. Yeah, it's similar, and it's very Arabian adventure story kind of stuff, which Lovecraft was, you know, super into that, you know, Arabian Nights kind of kind of business. And that was, right. I mean, that's an old, uh, Vathek is old. It's 1786. And there's also mention of John Yuri Lloyd's E.T. Dorfia, or Eddie Dorfia. That was in 1895, so that's sort of like around... You know, kind of Jules Verne sort of stuff. It's a Hollow Earth story. Oh, okay. You know, about how there's this whole kind of other world that exists in the center of the Earth. You know, there's this whole other yeah. thing. And there's a few stories. You know, Journey to the Center of the Earth is just similar to this, too. You know, they go they go deep, deep down. Actually, there are parts of this that are very much like that because Carter goes down some burrows and drops into these oh. subterranean worlds. And that happens. I mean, in Journey to the Center of the Earth, there's actually an ocean down there. Yeah. There's a whole civilization. There's gigantic animals and gigantic people. And there's, you know, it, this is... Lovecraft's version of what a lot of uh, genre and pulp authors did, which was take a, a hero out of normal mundane settings and put him in a strange land where, I mean, that's what Avatar yeah. is, right? I mean, it, it, it's a story that gets told over and over and over. Right. right, right. And then, of course, um, maybe there's a little bomb, you know, in this two story too. Wizard of Oz? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I think Wizard of Oz, I mean, thematically, is sort of the same story. It's, it's, it's really very similar. And I don't know if he's... If Lovecraft ever read any of it, is, he doesn't mention it in any of his letters. I'm fairly sure he did. It would seem that way. Well, especially hearing that last paragraph again when he says that the, the black cat kind of wakes up. Right. When he wakes up, it's almost like, and you were there? Yeah. <laughs> and then he looks over and there's a little pet frog and he goes, and you were there? <laughs> and there's just a naked guy in the corner eating a bone. And you were there? <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, you know what's another weird thing that they do in this story is that it takes all the old stories like The White Ship. And the other gods, it takes Polaris, it takes, you know, these things that are supposedly set in Earth's ancient history, but it transports them into the dreamlands. Right. Which is strange because they were in Earth's ancient history, but now they exist in the dreamlands or is this busy? I don't know. I was confused about the ghoul thing. Are the ghouls down there when they're sleeping? Yeah. Or do they actually physically enter into the dreamlands? You know, do they cross over in a physical way? I think um, that... I mean, just in my understanding of it, if From Beyond is actually an important story to me because it talks about these other dimensions. I think that there, we have ac- there's just access points, and for humans, it's going to sleep. But for other people, it might just be another dimension they walk into. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So there's things that exist in ancient history. They exist now in the dreamlands. It's all happening simultaneously. Hmm. Yeah, and one last thing that I want to bring up, too, is uh, sure. some people talk about this as being kind of the full version of Azathoth. Ah, right, right. The fragment. You know, like the fragment was sort of the kernel for this whole story and yeah. yeah i mean that makes sense definitely well it, you know i never thought that i would get through it i gotta tell you you know i put it down a couple times but i'm glad we did and and uh i am going to be thinking about this story for the rest of my life i think <laughs> in one way or another it just things about it will will probably pop there, up occasionally. there's definitely parts that really resonate with me and are super interesting and i, I mean they're very inspiring frankly that i want to take yeah. these things and do something like that or different or borrow it you know? well chris uh I think it's very late there for you. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm recording late. I'm, it's almost one o'clock in the morning for me. Yeah. Uh, but Chad, uh, you are going on a vacation. Yeah, I'm boarding a black galleon off up to Alaska to see my wife, who's been doing a show up there. 
So I'm looking forward to that. I'll be I'll be gone for about a week. And Chad, I'm going to be uh, flying on the back of an icon to the land of Cyprus. Right. Woo. Sounds cool. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll have a little downtime then between this last episode yes. and our next episode, which is going to cover another lengthy novel, The Case of Charles Dexter. Yeah. Get excited for this one because this is yeah. this is a great one. That's going to be good stuff. So we'll be off for a week or two. Yeah. Uh, we'll keep things updated on Facebook and on the page. Yep. And I want to thank Lance Holt for, again, just knocking it out of the park and for sticking with us on this very long story. We record these things and we get the readings together and we send them over to the readers and they have very little time to get the stuff done. Yeah. And Lance has been a champ turning it around and getting it to Absolutely. Us. And we really appreciate it. So, so thank you so much. Thank Lance. you so much, Lance. You did a great job and you've been super helpful and uh, I wish I could kiss you. Sounds good. <laughs> With with that, uh, I want to wish everybody sweet dreams, and we'll be talking to you soon. I'm Chad Fife. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. <laughs>